Welcome to the Women in Work podcast. My name is Courtney Powell, and I serve as the Director of Ministry Content for Women in Work and oversee all of our ministry initiatives. One of our initiatives is our book club, where we choose a book and read it together as a community. And at the close of our reading, we interview the author of the book we read. For this summer season, we are highlighting five of our previous book club conversations for you to enjoy. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Jim Hamilton of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky for his book, Work and Our Labor in the Lord. This book was a unique one for us because it was our first deep dive into biblical theology as we explored the theme of work throughout all of scripture. Dr. Hamilton is incredibly pastoral and his approach to this topic was so encouraging and so clearly from the perspective of a shepherd who loves his church. We hope you find his insights helpful and that they will spur you on to further study of scripture and help you fall even more in love with the story of the Bible. Check out our show notes for any resources that were mentioned during this episode. All right, welcome everyone to Women in Work's seventh live author Q&A with our Women in Work book club. My name is Courtney Powell. I'm the Director of Ministry Content for Women in Work, and I am joined by my co-host, Fernie Cosgrove, who is our new book club coordinator. And we are so excited to welcome Dr. James Hamilton tonight as we discuss his book, Work and Our Labor in the Lord. Welcome, Dr. Hamilton. We are really excited for you to be here with us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. So if you are on the Facebook Live, we would love for you, if you have any questions or anything that you would like us to try to ask Dr. Hamilton, at the very end of our interview, we'll have a little bit of time for some questions. So be sure to submit those on there or just give us a wave and let us know where you are watching from. And we have a couple announcements at the end of the interview that we're really excited about. So be sure to stick around. Well, again, Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for being here with us. And we are looking forward to getting to know you better. So just before we begin, I want to make sure that everyone that is joining us gets to know you a little bit more. So um, Dr. Hamilton is a professor of biblical theology at Southern Seminary, where he has served on staff since 2008. He is an accomplished author, speaker, and theologian, and he has authored several books. Um, his, including God's glory and salvation through judgment and biblical theology, and his two newest releases, which are Typology, Understanding Biblical pa- uh, Bible's Promises, Shapes, and Patterns, as well as a commentary on the book of Psalms, and um, his dissertation book on God's indwelling presence, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testaments, among several other books. You need to look them out. Um, he currently serves as a preaching pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church and is married to Jill. And they've been married almost 25 years, and together they have five children. Yeah, so Dr. Hamilton, we're really excited to have you. And I, there were some of the kind of questions we wanted to start off with is just to get to know you a little bit better. So can you tell us just a little more about yourself and your family? But also, I would love to know why you wrote this book. Why do you feel like... Um, the topic of the theology of work is important and what kind of spurred that on for you? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I, I, I have always loved to work and I think I, I got that from my dad. He, he's a very hard worker. Uh, I love to put in when I, when I grew up, I was, I was, a, I played ball, I played basketball and baseball 
and I love to put in the time on the court or in the batting cage. And I just love to, to try to pursue excellence in those, in those endeavors. And then as I, when I, once I joined the faculty here at Southern, there was this Commonweal project on campus that was promoting Christian sound thinking about things like work and economics. And so we had a faculty reading group and we were reading some really interesting books. And then they were also facilitating reading groups that we would have with students where we, we, we would read a book together and then discuss it with students. And sort of in the, in the mix of all those things happening, um, Dane Ortland and Miles Van Pelt started this series, Short Studies in, Bibli in Biblical Theology. And they reached out to me and asked me if I would like to contribute to the series. And, you know, I was doing all this reading that was related to work and so forth. And, and they invited me to contribute to the series. And I said, well, how about a book on work? And they liked the idea. And so here we are. So that, that's sort of how that came about. I love that. That's really great. And it's an incredibly helpful resource. So we're really glad that you wrote it. Well, I appreciate that very much. And we really want to get into diving into the content of the book. But before we get into the content, you did mention um, these short studies on biblical theology. So for the women who are listening to us who don't know what biblical theology is or need a refresher, could you give us a quick um, explanation of what biblical theology is? I'd be delighted. So uh, in my view, biblical theology is the attempt to understand and embrace the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors. You could say the attempt to understand and embrace the worldview of the biblical authors. And so that, that invites us to ask the question, what goes into a worldview? And I think the big components are what your overarching master story is. Uh, so this would be your meta narrative, where things came from, where things are going, what's gone wrong, what the Lord is doing to fix it. And then also we all we derive truths from the big story. And the Bible does this, you know. So uh, from the beginning of the story, God makes the man, and then he says it's not good for the man to be alone, and he makes the woman, brings her to the man. And then when they come together, there's this conclusion that is drawn. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. And that kind of conclusion that is drawn from the way the story works out, we could call this a dogma or, you know, a, a a foundational truth, something like this. So you have your master story, you have truths that you derive from the story, and then you have behaviors that are either in accordance with the story or out of step with the story, or behaviors that the, the authors are promoting or discouraging, as the case may be. Um, and then there are responses of praise and, and worship. So, you know, you have this big controlling narrative, the truths that get derived from it, uh, the behaviors, the ethics that correspond to it, the the worship that um, that we should uh, return to the Lord in response to the big story, um, and then um, another component of this is the way that symbolism uh, works to summarize and interpret the story. So, in terms of the the Bible, you know, you'll you'll have these uh, Edenic symbols or um, um, various ways in which the presence of God is symbolized. Or you might have um, something like a, a, even a, a, a branch or a tree that's going to symbolize certain things. And those symbols, they're interpreting and summarizing the story and conveying its message. 
So when we put all this together, we're, we're trying to look at the world the way that biblical authors looked at the world, and then we're trying to understand both the Bible and our lives and the world that we live in in accordance with the way that the biblical authors did this. So that would be my attempt to understand biblical, or to explain biblical theology, what we're trying to do. Yeah, thank you so much for that explanation. I think um, just got to add a plug that if you want to learn more about it, Dr. Hamilton does have a book on biblical theology. So you, it's a quick read. It's a really good one. So just pick that up and just immerse yourself in biblical theology. But as we move forward on our topic of work, how is biblical theology um, how do we develop this understanding that informs how we work? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way, the way that I um, try to come at this, if we're trying to understand um, you know, the, the biblical author's interpretive perspective, then the question would be, where does work fit in their perspective? And so um, here, the gospel is so transformative for our understanding of work, because in so many cases... Um, people can slip into finding their identity in their work, or they can slip into seeking to justify their existence by their work, whether that's by their performance or by their achievements. And in this case, understanding that we're created beings who live in a fallen world in which God has accomplished redemption through the Lord Jesus, this every piece of that is going to inform how we work. The fact that we're created... Uh, keeps us from thinking that we are going to take over a godlike uh, uh, role in the world and somehow sovereignly control things. None of us is going to attain to that. And then the fact that this is a fallen world, I, I think it it can it can help us to deal and deal with our our expectations and manage our expectations to realize that the Lord actually. Uh, cursed the ground and and spoke of how the man would eat bread in pain and by the sweat of his brow he would bring forth uh, the fruit of the ground and and then um, the fact that Christ has accomplished redemption this keeps us from trying to save ourselves by our work it keeps us from trying to um, somehow establish our our worth or or our dignity or our validity as human beings through what we can accomplish or achieve or uh, something like this. And, and all of that, understanding the Bible and the gospel in these ways, it really frees us to say, I, I, I want to present my work as part of my living sacrifice to the Lord. I want to try to honor the Lord. And as Paul encourages people to do in Colossians, work at these things with all my heart as for the Lord, um, knowing simultaneously that there's going to be a component of, of vanity to my work because I'm going to die and, and because this world is not permanent, uh, but also believing because of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15 that my labor in the Lord is not in vain. So this, this theological, uh, biblical theological approach to thinking about our work really, I think, helps us on many levels. Yeah, I love that. I was muted, but I was saying, yes, that's right, the whole time that you were talking. I want to kind of go back to the piece about, so for those of you that may be tuning in that haven't had a chance to read the book yet, it's it's mapped out into four different sections. So he talks about work and creation, 
work after the fall, redemption and restoration, which he kind of just mapped out for us right there. But I do want to go back. There is a common misunderstanding, whether it's in Christian culture, secular culture, and it may not even be something that is taught on the forefront. But I think a lot of people believe that work is actually a result of the fall as opposed to it being something that God created. And so can you just talk about how understanding that God is the author of work how can that change our perspective of how we view work? How should that change our perspective of how we view work? That's a great question. And, and really thinking about God and creation, that alone will begin to revolutionize our thinking about what we're, what we're doing and, and, and the results of our work. Uh, because when we contemplate the way that God created the world, what we see is this phenomenal abundance, this unsparing, lavish generosity that is on display everywhere. I mean, you have these springs of water that just bubble up and seem to be limitless. And then you have this growth that is all over the planet that sometimes is frustrating because it, it grows so fast or because it puts off so many leaves that you have to deal with. Uh, but But there's just an abundance of life. And I think this really... It, it reflects the way that God himself is a, a sort of never-ending fountain of creativity and life just abounding from himself. And, and this aspect of his character uh, is reflected in the abundance of creation. Well, into this abundant creation that is teeming with life and, and reflects endless ingenuity and creativity and, and resourcefulness and and a, a supply of, of power that, that will never be exhausted. Into all that, the Lord <clears throat> puts the man and the woman in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And he said, he, he blesses them, which that too is revolutionary, uh, because, you know, you can compare it to the way in the ancient Near Eastern stories, uh, the, the reason people are created is because the gods want slaves to do the work. Well, this is not the case in the Bible. And um, so God, God makes these people, and he's not unhappy with them. He blesses them. And then he says to them to be fruitful and multiply. And it's almost as though the, the, the character of God to overflow and abound with life and, and to create new life, he's saying, live out my character. Be like me. Be fruitful and multiply. And, and I would observe that that is an aspect of what we're called to do as human beings, and it's something that that neither the man nor the woman can achieve by him or herself. You know, that the male and the female are necessary to the being fruitful and multiplying. And then he says, um, fill the earth and subdue it. So um, be fruitful and multiply, um, fill the earth and subdue it, and then have dominion over uh, the, and then he names the animals. So I think that this, this is a call to human beings that somehow they make God's creation even better than he made it, that they improve upon it. And in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, I think what the Lord is, is getting at is the way that the, the boundaries of the Garden of Eden are to be expanded out so that all creation becomes a place where God can be present with and known by and enjoyed by um, those that he has made in his own image and likeness. So I think that was the great 
task at creation, and it was a task that would have involved labor. I mean, even when when uh, Adam is put in the garden in Genesis two fifteen, he's put there um, to to work and keep the garden. Or you, you know, you could translate those two terms um, to serve. That's the term uh, to work. Uh, some in some places the word is minister, and then the keep is a kind of protection. You know, establish the boundaries and protect what's within the within the garden. So there's a there's a cultivation and then a protection that is entailed, and that's all prior to the entrance of sin and, and then the, the words of judgment uh, that, that are brought in response to the sin. Yeah, that's... Thank you I so much been, for... I'm, I'm like taking notes while I'm talking. Um, yeah, that's really, I mean, really helpful. Mm, praise the Lord. I think that, yeah, one of the things that can make the reason why work can feel like it's a result of the fall is because of Genesis 3. And so mm -hmm. we do feel the painful effects of work, but that doesn't mean that the origin of work is due to sin. But I think it can be really hard to make those um, distinctions. One of the things that we love about you and that I think you bring a unique perspective to this conversation is that you're also a pastor. And mm. so you shepherd people in your congregation that are workers. Mm. And so one of the questions that we wanted to ask you is what are some regular encouragements that you feel like you offer to men and women? Obviously we're an audience of women, um, but this would be applicable to both who are struggling mm -hmm. to find purpose or who are just struggling to honor God in the work that they're doing. What are some things that you have found as a shepherd that you're regularly encouraging people to remember or to feast on? Hmm. That's a great question. Uh, I'd like to answer it actually with a story uh, from one of Tim, Tim Keller's books. Um, he describes these two ladies who have a seemingly insignificant job. And, and they both have the same job, and it's on an assembly line. I think this is a made-up story, but it makes a great point. Um, you know, they, they feel like their work is totally meaningless. They're just doing the same action over and over again. And uh, the one lady says, um, uh, well, for, for one of the ladies, no promises about the future have been made. For the second lady, she has been promised that if she faithfully discharges her duty, um, when she completes her career, she will be awarded this $30 million, uh, you know, uh, retirement package. And, and the first lady says to the second lady, don't you get tired of this, this drudgery that we are engaged in every day? And the second lady says, oh, no, I'm thrilled to be engaged in this work. In fact, I'm so happy about what awaits me that I whistle while I work. And, and so I think what's illustrated here is the way that what we're looking forward to can really transform even these, these seemingly meaningless jobs in the present. And so um, something that I try to remind people as I have opportunity is that as important as the actual work you're doing is the way that this is shaping your character and the way that this is uh, informing the kind of person you are. And, and even in, in the challenges, in the difficulties, in the trials, the afflictions, as you persevere through these things, you are being deepened and you are being strengthened. And, and often 
the the kind of early less difficult things are preparing you for later more difficult things so i think of the way that david for instance when he when he stood forward to go and face goliath he said to saul um anytime a lion or a bear came and attacked the flock of my father and carried off one of the sheep i would go after it and i would grab him by the beard and strike him and deliver the the animal you know that i was a shepherd responsible for and you know, as you think about that, I'm sure that David was not happy to see the lion across the field that was going after his sheep. You know, this is not something, a life-threatening opportunity to go and fight off a, a predator is not really something you look forward to. But that tribulation, that difficulty, that trial prepared him for the day when the Philistine would come and defy the armies of Israel. So as we think about the future, I, I really think there's a, a sense in which what we are enduring now is preparing us even for the tasks that the Lord has for us in the new heavens and new earth. And so just recently at Kenwood, I was preaching on Hebrews 2. And in that passage, it speaks of how the Lord Jesus was perfected through suffering. And, and I think the author of Hebrews, you know, he's later in Hebrews 12, he's going to come back to this idea and he's going to say, uh, consider him, uh, the Lord Jesus, who for the joy set before him, that future, uh, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then he says to his audience, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And then he says, and you've forgotten the word of exhortation that addresses you as sons. And I think he's getting at the way that, look, if Christ is going to be perfected through suffering, you're going to be perfected through suffering. And, and if the Lord Jesus could endure the cross, scorning its shame, you can endure what you're facing. It's not going to be propitiatory, substitutionary sacrifice that accomplishes salvation, but it will be forming you into Christ's likeness. And it does have a joy on the other side of it uh, that is that, that can motivate you to, in, to endure. So that, that, that there's some things. There, there, there's more I could say. Wow. No, thank you so much for that. I think for all the women and including us, this is like so encouraging because I think, you know, starting with the biblical theology and how God designed this beautiful work from the beginning, right? That is affected by sin. But even as we strive, you know, and I think as women, we a lot of times have that conversation about how, you know, you if you work outside the home, you go, you work and you come home for the second job of feeding the children, putting them to sleep, right? And, the, and it feels like that, that the striving and the suffering, right? It never ceases. And then you go to bed and they wake you up in the middle of the night. So I think um, it's so important for us as women, I think in, in this conversation for us to keep that mindset of really keeping our eyes ahead and on the future and what's promised for us in heaven, how really like what, whatever situation we're in right now really is preparing us for what the Lord has ahead for us. So thank you so much for, for that encouragement. And um, kind of as we continue to talk about this, one of our values here at Women in Work is the idea of work as worship. And mm. you alluded a little bit about that, especially when we, you talked about how our work is supposed to be, you know, um, a reflection of God's character. So could you give us a, a few practical examples of what it looks like to reflect God's character in our unique work? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, there, there are so many opportunities that we have 
to do the thing that none of our coworkers want to do. And, and I think that when we, when we see an opportunity like that, and we recognize nobody else wants to do this aspect of the job or, you know, nobody else wants to take this on, we can really um, embrace a Christ-likeness and say, um, I am going to serve my coworkers by, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, whatever the unpleasant task is that everyone can see that's going to be demanding, that's probably going to be unpleasant, uh, that's going to be a thankless task. Or, or, you know, it, it might be that this is the, the, the dirty and, and um, you know, uh, not necessarily defiling, but uh, it, it could be that um, someone has had an accident or someone, ha- you know, whatever. You, you can serve people in all kinds of ways. And um, I think there's a, there's a Christ-likeness in being willing to say, I would rather take this on myself than have one of these people that I love who clearly doesn't want to do this have to do it. So there's a, there's a Christ likeness in that. And I think too, that even in the, um, the recognition that, that I, by my, my willing spirit and my glad hearted embrace of what has been assigned to us to do, I can be, I can be an encouragement to, to my coworkers. I can be uh, a blessing to the situation that I'm in. So I think there's a, an attitudinal component that we can bring where by uh, embracing the things that are set before us and, and by the comments that we make about what's going on, uh, we, can, we can be part of spurring others on to love and good deeds. Um, there, there, there are no doubt many, many things that could be said on this front. Um, and, and I think that you know, we, we all just have so many opportunities to recognize ways that we can follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus who suffered for doing what is good. And, um, um, in, in all these, in all these things I'm, I'm kind of speaking to, uh, we, we're all pursuing a Christ likeness that says, I want to honor the father by, uh, for the benefit of others, seeking to take up my cross and, and follow the Lord Jesus. Yeah, that's really good. (laughs) I keep taking notes on all the things you're saying. That's really helpful because I think it can be hard to draw a practical kind of arrow between, you know, we, we, even throughout the book, I, I thought it was really helpful when you gave examples about this because we talk about kingdom purposes, but then... The assembly line story is honestly a great story because then when you're in the middle of this mundane Mm. work, it's like, how am I really honoring God when I'm doing this? You know, Mm. how am I really practically doing that? My work doesn't feel like it's meaningful. My work doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like it's actually doing, serving any kind of purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I loved all of what you had to say here. And kind of the next question is it's in the same vein and it might be a little bit stickier, but again, we wanted to ask you because you are a pastor <laughs> and we feel like you probably had to address a lot of questions like this before, but how do you encourage men and women that are working in secular environments that are experiencing maybe increasing, yep, Bernie works in a secular environment, that are experiencing increasing social pressures from their mm. companies to maybe with policies or 
practices that maybe wouldn't line up with God's word. So we would love for you to just take some time and kind of help help our women and our audience think through how to be discerning and how to work well in those environments that are really, they're hostile to the gospel. Right. So this may seem disconnected, but I'm, I'm hopefully, I'm, hopefully I can bring this back around. You know, recently the one child policy in China ended and back around 2011 or 2012, one of those two years, I was actually, I had the opportunity to Maybe I shouldn't have named the country, but I I had the opportunity to go there and and teach. I, I was teaching the Bible, and the, my translator was a woman, and she was a woman who had been an English professor in one of the universities in that country, and her career as an English professor came to an end when she conceived her second child, and the state said to her, "You can." either abort this child and keep your job or you can have the child and you will never work legally in China again. And she said it wasn't, I, I, I was so impressed with her response. I was so impressed with her, uh, her godliness and her faith and her resolve to live for the Lord. She said it wasn't even a question. And, and you know, so she had the child and her career in the university ended. And now the policy is gone. And, and that policy is an example of something that is ungodly. It, it goes against the created order. It is, it, it's really anti-science, even though they adopted it because they were trying to be scientific. And, and it's, it's counterproductive. It's, it's, it's jeopardizing their future as a nation because now they're, even though they're trying to get their society to reproduce, they've trained their society not to reproduce. And so they're in a real demographic problem because their birth rates are so low. Well, you know, imagine how my, my friend Lillian would feel. This was her English name. I don't know her Chinese name. But imagine how she would have felt had she gone along with the government and then they had ended the policy. I think she would feel nothing but regret. And, and so the point that I'm kind of driving at here is these crazinesses, um, like Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue that he wants Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow to, they're not real. That's not a real God. They're not going to be permanent. They're, they're not worth bowing down to. And I would say about like the, the transgender craziness in our culture, I mean, I, I think in the news today there was a, a, a bill in Virginia that threatens uh, punishing parents if they're not trans-affirming. And I don't know what the... But this is, not, this is not something that is in accordance with the created order, and I don't think it's something that is going to last. It may last, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, 100 years even at worst, but in the long run people are going to recognize there are males and there are females and the one cannot become the other. And, and so, you know, if you're on the side of truth and you're on the side of the Bible and you're on the side of the Lord, you, you shouldn't, we should not compromise, make compromises, um, to, to, I think in a way, take on the mark of the beast of the moment. We should not do that in order to maintain some temporary benefit, whether that's a job or an income or 
um, you know, health benefits or life insurance or whatever it is that they're holding out to us. Um, there, there's a story about, about Adolf Hitler uh, making a comment about the German pastors uh, who were in the pay of the German government. And Hitler demanded that those pastors swear an oath of allegiance to him personally. And at one point he was asked if the pastors would go along with the final solution with reference to the Jews. And he said, they will do exactly what I tell them to do for their piddly little salaries. So he held them in nothing but contempt, and he recognized that because he was paying them, he, he felt like he had the ability to tell them what to say and what to do. And, you know, of course, there, there were some heroes, but there were also a lot of people that we would look back on and say, you shouldn't have gone along. And, and I, you know, as, as things played out, Hitler didn't last forever. And the final solution wasn't final. And the people that went along with it, they're ashamed of themselves. And the people that resisted, whatever it cost them, you know, they're the heroes. So it cost Dietrich Bonhoeffer his life. He was executed in a concentration camp. But we look back on him with admiration. And he's a hero. And, and I think that, you know, there's this great statement in Revelation 13 where uh, John describes the way that the beast is granted authority um, for, for 42 months, so this short period of time, three and a half years, in which he can attack God's people and even kill them. <clears throat> and then in Revelation 13, verse 10, he said, 13, 9 and 10, he says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. And it's like John is saying, look, some of you are going to go to jail. Get ready. Some of you are going to be martyred. Get ready. This is a call for the endurance and perseverance of the saints. And, and I think that that's the, the attitude we have to adopt. If the government makes it so that I cannot make a living doing what I do, well, okay, I'm going to be faithful. If the government makes it where I'm going to be clapped in irons and thrown into prison, well, I need to get ready and I need to be faithful. If they make it where, if I, if I preach the gospel or if I refuse to affirm, they're going to put me to death. Well, um, the Lord Jesus indicates in Revelation 6 that the full number of the martyrs is to be filled up and it'll be an honor for me to join their ranks. We really need to, we, we don't need to sit around wringing our hands saying, oh, what's going to happen? I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage. We need to be prepared to say, Lord, help me whatever comes to be faithful to you. Gosh, that is, that is good. <laughs> mm. I, I have never really thought about when you said the Nebuchadnezzar, you know, just the, the fact that that statue, it's not worth bowing down to. I mm. love that you said that. And also just the idea that all of these things are temporary. Now, you may not see the end of them in, in your lifetime, but they no. ultimately, they are. Um, and so when you stand before the Lord, it's like, what do you want to have bowed down to? Um, I think that's a really helpful, eternal, kingdom-minded perspective that we have to bring into our work. It doesn't feel that way. It feels mm -hmm. urgent, and it feels like the present it's not that the present doesn't matter, but it feels like the present is, it makes you, it kind of makes you want to panic. Um, yeah. But keeping that eternal just perspective of what it would, 
what it could cost to honor the Lord um, is really helpful because our reward is so much better, right? <laughs> our reward is so much better in the, in the and, end there. And if, if I may um, yeah. just add a little, uh, another thought here, you know, um, we could, we could come into a situation where we face more pursuit. We may, we may or may not, who knows? The Lord knows what's going to happen. Um, you know, if you study, if you study history, you see people exercising ingenuity and, and being patient and persevering. And in some cases, finding a way, you know, to navigate what's happening. So I, I have friends uh, here in, in Louisville who are here training for pastoral ministry, and they plan to go back to uh, the land that I've mentioned, and, and they're from that place, and they plan to go back there and engage in pastoral ministry, and they plan to make a way. They plan to find a way and, and you know, face whatever consequences, but they're, they're going to try to avoid those consequences. And I, I think if we study church history, you know, if you, if you read on uh, people like Corey Ten Boom or or people like Brother Andrew, you know, they're trying to be faithful to the Lord and they're facing great risks and they're they're facing potential persecution. And and in the midst of it, it's almost like the Lord provides manna from heaven or or gives water from the rock. It, it, these these opportunities open up that you would never expect. And, and the Lord um, enables people to do. Uh, things that please him and and things that benefit others, even even as wicked, um, evil uh, powers try to put a stop to the Lord's work. Thank you so much for that. I absolutely love that. And I just love how in our conversation, we really kind of did that full wraparound, right? We started talking about what does biblical theology look like and ended up right with an application. And this is how understanding the story of all of the Bible and what biblical theology is and how it applies to our work looks like, right? And I think when we have that conversation, even as you were talking, I was thinking about like, as we um, face all of the issues in our society that we are facing, if we don't have that perspective and that lens of abundance that the Lord will provide. And that's why in Matthew 6, 36, he says, do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow we'll take care of ourselves. Can you see? the birds can you see the plants and it's like as humans and as a we just forget about the lord's goodness about the lord lord's faithfulness and we get so consumed with being in control that we forget who really is in control and i think as we use the sermon and navigating these issues it's so helpful to keep that perspective from the beginning of the story to the end and how that looks like in our work so um one last question that we want to close up with and that we always like closing with is can you share with us your favorite resources on the topic of work? Sure. I, you know, I think the best book on work that, that I've read um, is probably Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. That's just a great book. I also really appreciated uh, Wayne Grudem's book, Business for the Glory of God. And I think, you know, it's a really it's a nice short book. It has great, great truths in it. Um, also, the, a couple of those books that I mentioned a few moments ago that, that we read in this Commonweal project that we were doing at Southern, uh, one of them was called Common Sense Economics. And it's amazing how many um, just irrational things get promoted in our society 
And we almost, we don't even think about them to realize, well, that's a really irrational thing to do. Uh, but this book, Common Sense Economics, it really brings out, um, uh, it's, it's, I, I don't know if the authors are Christian, but it's almost like reading the book of Proverbs applied to a lot of economic questions. And then another really good book that I appreciated along those lines is called um, Economics in One Easy Lesson uh, by Victor Hazlitt. And uh, again, it's, it's, it's one of those books that it, it, it sort of traces out the way that everything is connected and the way that there, there are going to be these unintended consequences uh, to almost any action that has to do with either work or economics and, and thinking through those the consequences of actions and uh, those that are intended and those that are unintended, uh, it's, it's really helpful. It's a really good book. So th- there are three for you. Okay, that's great. Okay, we, we actually did have a question submitted during our live. So this is from someone watching right now. Wonderful. So, better be on your toes. No, it should be a pretty simple one. Um, but the question is, how do you manage all of the areas that you work in? Seminary, church, writing, and family. How do you manage all of those well? That's mm. a big theme that we get from women a lot is about balance and just kind of how do I do well in all of these different areas? You have lots of things going on. So we would love to hear kind of how you feel like you balance those things. Sure. So, um, you know, I think that the most important thing for all of us is our walk with the Lord. And, and so, uh, for me, for me personally, um, as I, as I memorize and meditate on scripture, it's, it's, I experience the, the, the renewal and the transformation of my mind and heart. And it's like I'm, I'm experiencing the glory of God in the face of Christ and I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so, um, what energizes me, what fuels me, what keeps me going is walking with God. Um, so I, I love even before I, uh, I get out of bed in the morning, I'll grab my phone and I'll, um, before I turn it on, I'll try to um, rehearse, you know, the passage or the verse that I was working on the previous day, and then I'll turn it on and I'll I'll read the next verse ten times and then try to say it ten times without looking at it. So I'm and I'm just trying to do like a verse a day and and work on uh, extended passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, and um, so that meditation on Scripture. Uh, is really, really good for me, really, really helpful to me, informs my prayer life, um, and, and helps me to, um, to have something that I'm locked onto that I'm, I'm trying to meditate on day and night. So I'm trying to get this, this, these texts in my head first thing in the morning and then really live off them, off of them the rest of the day. Uh, I think another thing that helps me is to, to recognize, um, which parts of the day are best for which kinds of work, and then to to not try to force into the wrong part of the day the wrong part of or the wrong kind of work. And so, um, for me personally, the best time for me to write is in the window between like eight a.m. and noon. That's when I'm most creative. I'm most energetic. I could I feel like I could conquer the world from eight a.m. to noon. But then. You know, around lunchtime, I'm going to be hungry and then I'm going to be tired and, and I'm not going to be as fresh. And, and, uh, the prospect of trying to sit down and write is going to feel a lot more daunting. And so I've learned 
that there are other things that I can be more productive at than, than trying to compose fresh content in the afternoon. And then, you know, we're all, we're all challenged with the prospect of embracing God's sovereignty in our lives. And so if God has sovereignly ordained that I don't get my window from 8 a.m. to noon to write, well, I need to embrace that and throw myself into what it is that the Lord has for me. And then one more thing I'll, well, two more things I'll add. Um, uh, I find that physical exercise is so profoundly good for me. At, you know, it, um, to, to stay healthy physically, um, I, I had a conversation with Robert Yarbrough, who teaches at Covenant Theological Seminary, and he said, you know, as we age, uh, your, our bones get brittle, our brains get weak, our bodies begin to decay and, and, and uh, deteriorate. And he said, exercise is good for your brain, it's good for your sleep, it's good for your memory, it's good for your bone density, it's good for your heart, it's good for your circulation. I mean, just go on and on and on. And so uh, I like to exercise. And, and I think that um, after I exercise, I often come back to, I'll often, I'll often do it around 2 o'clock or so in the afternoon. If I, if I have a free afternoon or if I don't have other obligations in the afternoon, you know, I'll, I'll work until two and then I'll exercise for 30 or 45 minutes. And then when I go back to work, I'm more productive. It's almost like it's morning again after exercising. So that's really helpful. And then uh, the last thing I'll say is that um, I really think having a healthy relationship with my wife and kids makes me more productive at work. Um, so if, if my wife and I are in a good place and we're right, then I can sit down and I can thrive and flourish. And, and then, you know, if the kids come and they want to do something or they want to go somewhere, uh, the joy and the gladness and the, the, the way that that is life giving will invigorate me and help me to, to, you know, do good work when I return to it. Um, so I think all those things, walking with God, um, recognizing the best time to do which thing, and then uh, exercise, and then family life. I mean, I, years ago I read a, a a statement from Danny Aiken. He's, he, he was quoting some study uh, that had to do with the difference in performance um, of men, uh, different performance at work of men who kiss their wives before they leave for work in the morning. And they do so much better than guys that don't uh, kiss their wives before they leave for work in the morning. And I think that, you know, that's just a, a just a sort of glimpse into a healthy relationship um, that, that's going to result in, in gladness and energy and, and, and flourishing at your labor. Um, so the, the kids are great for that. The, the healthy marriage is great for that. And um, I, I think that as, as we get this holistic um, um, sort of perspective on our lives, it keeps us from uh, getting to a place where we either burn out. I don't want to burn out. I want to I hope to work for a long time yet, and I hope to have joy in working for a long time yet. And that's going to require physical health. It's going to require um, good, a good, good relationships at home, and um, it's going to require me recognizing what goes where in terms of which jobs at which times. So, and and all of it, of course, is growing out of the walk with God. Yeah, I love that. I love that you start with the 
the foundational principle of instead of just giving, obviously there's practical things that you can do, but the primary focus to flourish in a lot of areas is when you're focused on who the type of person that you need to be right. And Mm -hmm. developing godly character um, Mm -hmm. is what's the foundation of working well. And we all have so many responsibilities and none of them we're going to balance perfectly. But if we are keeping our eyes fixed on, I am growing in Christ likeness. That's going to overflow into all of these different areas. I love that answer. Sometimes when people answer the work balance question, they don't give as many practical tips. So I love that you gave some really practical things that people can move towards. I really appreciate that. Well, okay, we are wrapping, we actually are now (laughs) wrapping up our time together. Thank you so much for coming and this has been really encouraging for me. I know it's been encouraging for all of our listeners as well. If you are listening and you haven't bought the book yet, I just want to encourage you that if you want more of this content of looking at the biblical narrative and how that can help you in your day-to-day work, I just want to encourage you to buy the book. We're going to link to it in the comments. We have a link to it on our website as well, but we highly recommend it. It's really helpful. It's meaty, but it's not... Um, it's accessible. It's not too heavy. It's shorter. It's something that you can read quickly. So don't wait another minute to make that purchase. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much for joining us. We're so grateful for you. This conversation was such a blessing for all of the women in our community. Well, praise the Lord. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe and leave a review for this podcast. Check out our show notes for links to any resources mentioned in this episode. Also, Women in Work released our first ever book, Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and Joining in His Mission Through Our Work. Be sure to order your copy today. You can find more information about the book on our website. If you enjoy this type of content, we would be honored if you would consider supporting the work and mission of this organization. You can become a monthly donor or give a one-time gift. Any gift received will be stewarded to continue the work of inspiring, encouraging, and equipping women to leverage their giftings for God's kingdom. Thank you for your support.